0: This podcast is brought to you by Bruner Communications, your best resource for public speaking, presentation and storytelling skills. Visit LizBruner.com and take your skills to the next level. Hello, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Live Your Best Life with Liz Bruner. I'm Liz, and my goal with each episode is to share stories of people who are recreating their lives or rising above challenges to write their next chapters with authenticity. These stories give me the courage to go after living my best life, and I think they will do that for you too. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to the show, so this podcast can continue to inspire next chapters all over the world. It's never too late to create your next best chapter. I believe this to be true, and so does my guest today. She had huge success in the TV entertainment industry, hosting, reporting, producing, acting, and modeling on major shows and networks. On the outside, her life looked fabulous. But on the inside, she was hiding a traumatic, grueling childhood. Today, she has transformed her own life, and as a speaker, life coach, and a best-selling author, she is helping others heal their own lives. Perry Grossman, welcome to my podcast.
1: Oh, sweetie, I'm so happy to be a guest on your podcast. And as we were talking earlier, we have so much in common, so (laughs) many roads that are parallel. I look forward to having many more conversations, but thank you for having me on today. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a while. As have I.
0: And many people may know your name from your amazing media career. You've been on so many major shows. I'm just going to name a few. Entertainment Tonight, Lifetime, Fox, ABC, NBC. Just a few highlights for our listeners. What did you love about that work?
1: Oh my gosh, but I never felt like I was working. I mean, I actually felt guilty getting a paycheck. I'm not <laughs> When I first came to LA, I went there to seek my fame and fortune, you know, in acting. And then I soon found out that I really sucked at acting. I was horrible. <laughs> and I thought, okay, we got to pivot. This is right when VH1 and MTV, and we were called Movie Time before E! first started. So we were kind of the pioneers. Yes. I was always a good gabber. I mean, I could talk to anybody about anything, and I was curious. I love to hear people's stories. When they called me to say that I got the job at movie time, I was working at Cheesecake Factory as a waitress. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, in another restaurant as well, Nikki Blair's, and I was in my 20s, and I was just gathering any kind of funds to pay my rent we went through like three or four, you know, interviews. And then when I got the job, my agent said, well, this is what you need to do. You're going to be a field reporter, which you know what that means. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that entail? He says, well, you have to fly out all over the world on movie sets and interview actors. And I went, I I do what?
0: (laughs) (laughs) You mean, I really get to get paid to do this? (laughs) Yes.
1: And I just loved it. I mean, I I'm, you know, a gal from South Texas. Yes, I did travel quite a bit growing up, but this was a whole other animal mm. and it was naive. I did have my rose-colored glasses on, but I just loved seeing behind the scenes of the entertainment business. Mm. Like I said, it was something that I felt comfortable in. And it all goes back to a skill set that I had learned back in high school, which I know you believe in, talking about past skills that we think, oh, we're never going to you know this on in another job. But in actuality, those past set is what brings us to some of our future jobs. Absolutely. It was more of the fun of it that I enjoyed the most. You've called it bliss
0: while you were going on with all of the success and traveling around the world. And yet you kept your painful past a secret, even from some of your closest friends. You mentioned that you grew up in South Texas just a moment ago, and I know you had a loving relationship with your dad, but your mom sadly suffered from mental illnesses. She was jealous of your relationship with your dad. Something horrible happened when you were just a tiny five-year-old little girl.
1: Unfortunately, my mother suffered from mental illness called schizophrenia. And she had a double diagnosis. And back in those days, in the 60s, they didn't know what it was, bipolar. They knew schizophrenia, but how they treated it was, you know, lobotomies. Unfortunately, she was in one of her manic places. My dad was gone from work and she came in my bedroom. I was just playing with my dolls. I was five years old. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. I just didn't feel safe. And I could tell by the look in her eyes. If her eyes were really dark, that meant it was not safe. Mm. If her eyes were lighter, then it, I could feel a little bit safer. Well, her eyes were dark. She took me outside in our backyard. She says, I want you to bend down. I want you to put your face in the dirt. And I remember we had these in our backyard. They were like these 12 feet, you know, those huge sunflowers. mm mm-hmm. And I remember looking at them and I thought, why is my mom telling me to bend down and put my face in the dirt? And then all of a sudden, I felt something cold and hard against the back of my head. And then I realized it was a gun. She clicked it and she said, I have to do this because your father loves you more than me. Mm. Your memory only serves you so much, but the imprint that you remember is the feeling. Yes. And the feeling of unworthiness and safety and all of those things and the fear of dying was real. But where was I going to go? We're laying there crying. I don't remember if I said anything, you know, or whatever I did, but I remember she just walked away calmly. And I went back in my bedroom, climbed in my bed, and Liz, I fell asleep my dad came back home and he woke me up and he, you know, looked at me and he said, are you feeling okay? And I said, you know, I'm not so much. He tried to get the information from me. Oh, but before this, I forgot to tell you, my mom came back in the room when I was sleeping before my dad got there and she was normal. And I'm so sorry. I did that, honey. You know, I love you very much, but please let's keep this a secret and not tell your dad. Mm. That's why I didn't say anything. And he kept coming back in and checking on me. Finally, I told him. He didn't say much. All I remember is that they started screaming at each other and yelling and banging each other. And I mean, it was horrible. The next morning, I remember hearing some people at the front door. Outside, it was a white van, and there were two guys dressed in white, and they were carrying a white jacket. My mom started running through the house screaming, screaming and saying, no, 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 no. You can't do this. You can't do this. And the door was open in my bedroom and she looked right at me and she said, this is your fault. Mm-hmm. And I saw them literally hold her down and they shot her up with some kind of, I'm sure, tranquilizer. And then I saw them wrap that straitjacket all around her and they took her away. And my dad just sat and cried. And I remember thinking, Oh, my God, this is my fault. Mm. If I kept my mouth shut, or if my dad didn't love me so much, things would be okay. Well, she ended up being there for three years. So that's when the story, you know, started to unfold. She came and visited sometimes, but she was never okay. But that was a secret that I didn't want anybody to know because of shame and because I felt guilty.
0: You ended up taking a psychology course at Oral Roberts University. And, and in many respects, that was kind of when that memory sort of resurfaced because you had kind of pushed it down. Your first husband and you were classmates at Oral Roberts, but you said again, you, you were living in a prison. What I thought was also interesting, too, I, I remember reading you say that you talked about all the stars that you interviewed, and one of them was Gregory Peck. And he says to you, there's sadness in your eyes. And that was truly a beginning of a defining moment for you. What happened?
1: I had a lot of people say that to me. And I was one of those people, Liz, I was like the cheerleader. You know, I had the perpetual smile on my face, energy galore. I was pretending. That's Mm. why I thought I'd be an actress. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretending to be happy and joyful, but I wasn't. It was a soul sickness, I remember thinking at that moment when he said it, I can't hide this anymore because we learn survival skills you know, throughout our lives on how to hide the pain, how to hide trauma. But there comes a point in your life that those survival skills don't work for you anymore where you have to do the inner work, where the pain is so much greater not doing it. You're just grabbing at anything to just make the pain go away.
0: That marriage didn't survive. Marriage number two, you guys were the it couple in Hollywood. But that too ended, and you went into a very, very dark place and have admitted that you attempted suicide at that point. What got you to a place of saying to yourself, wait a minute, my life does matter, and you are going to figure it out as to why you are here?
1: I was given a second chance. Actually, I felt like I'd had a third chance because the second chance came that I didn't die at my own mother's hands. Mm. And here, the second chance, I was trying to, to die at my own hands. And that's when I talk about the pain, because there was a time in my life when we were trying to have a child, and I was doing a lot of fertility treatments. There was a lot of drugs coursing through my body, and I felt my husband pulling away I felt him leaving me. I felt abandoned. I was going in and out of hospitals while I was going through these fertility treatments. Almost died in the hospital, too. But I just kept my eyes on all I wanted to do was be a mother. Mm. And I would do anything, including giving my own life to be a mother. I mean, that's the way my brain was thinking. But I didn't have any self-love Any belief that my life was really worth something. That's what I'm saying. You can be a great pretender, and believe me, I was. What people saw on television, what people saw as they saw me out in the world, was not who I really was. Mm -hmm. And because I would come at home or I would be in relationships and they wouldn't work because I was looking for outside love and I didn't know how to find it within. Mm -hmm. So when that happened, and I remember waking up, I was in a coma for four days after they pumped my stomach and all that. It was back in those days. There was a social worker at the end of my bed and she said, do you know why you're here? And I said, no. Hmm. And she told me, and I remember thinking, oh my God, I couldn't believe it.
0: You couldn't believe that you had done that to yourself?
1: Couldn't believe I had done that to myself. Mm-hmm. Wow. And I remember I had an aha moment then. And I thought, you know what? God saved me again. Again. So mm-hmm. I better go and figure out what I need to do and why I need to make my life important or to feel important or to feel like I need to give back because I've been given back to in so many supernatural ways that maybe there was something about my life that could make a difference to other people's mm-hmm. lives. That moment is when I decided I was going to heal once and for all. And what I did with it, I didn't know, but mm-hmm. I would tell the story to anybody who would listen just to give them hope and inspiration. Because if I could come out of those ashes, many times I knew that others could too. So that became my purpose.
0: You end up leaving TV and you're going to find yourself, but a friend of yours calls you back and he says, wait a minute, you need to come back to work. And he offers you a special show called Every Woman. And your first assignment is with poet Maya Angelou. A transforming day for you. You spent nearly all day with her and she really saw into your soul.
1: Oh, listen, that was another miracle. I'm getting chills just thinking about that again. Yes. Byron Allen was his name. He's a producer and he's a friend of mine. And we've known each other, you know, since day one in Hollywood. And I remember when I was going through the fertility things and he saw me sad. And I had, you know, basically retired from television just to try to be a mom. And he said, you know what, girl, you need to get back to work. <laughs> <laughs> no more feeling sorry for yourself. Let's get you back to work because that's where you belong. And so he offered me the job and he said, your first assignment is to go to North Carolina and meet Maya Angelou. And I thought, who? And he <laughs> said, Look, you better do your homework because she is known when you are in the studio and interviewing her, she knows whether you've done your homework or not. And she's been known to shut an interview down with just the first question. It was really great because I could stop feeling sorry for myself and, and you know, just completely focusing on me. And I just dove into her work and I read her books and I could feel what she'd been through. And it touched that woundedness in me, too. So her wounding touched my wounding because I still hadn't done the inner work yet.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And when I showed up with my team, the first question I asked, she smiled and she said, you've done your homework. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, I have. (laughs) And we ended up doing an hour and a half interview. And then at the end, she said, where are you guys going for lunch? And I said, I don't know. And she goes, well, I've got a perfect place. How about my house? And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is great. But I have my crew. She goes, I'll bring them, too. So we all went over to Maya Angelou's house. Can you imagine?
0: Yes, I can, because I've interviewed her, and I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, so,
1: (laughs) you know, walking, you know, you walk in her living room, she has that beautiful tapestry.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So, well, first of all, we all have lunch. And then she said, come here, I want to take you outside in the backyard. And her backyard is full of sculptures. It's just like a sculpture garden. And we sat on a bench. Now, remember, at that time, I probably weighed barely 95 pounds. Mm. She took my hand and she looked in my eyes and she said the same thing that so many other people said to me before. She said, when I look at you, I see a smile, but I see the pain. And she said, tell me about it. And I just burst into Mm -hmm. tears. Mm. Told her my story. And I told her, maybe I just need to give up on trying to be a mom. And I need to give up doing what I'm doing. And she took my hand. She says, no, ma'am. This is your gift. This is your calling. You have the voice and are the voice of people who can't speak for themselves. Mm. And she said, do not give up on yourself. Do not give up on your gift you pick your big girl panties back up and she goes, (laughs) you go out there and you figure out how to heal and get back into what you're supposed to be doing. And I thought, yes, ma'am. In those days we exchanged um, our email addresses and I decided to move from LA, get out of it. It wasn't healthy. And I moved to Sun Valley, Idaho to start my healing journey. And Maya was with me for about nine months and as I was on the floor, still just in so much pain, so much hurt trying to figure out what to do. And it was one of those mentors that I'll never forget that also helped me decide I want to be a mentor like her, like other mm-hmm. coaches, other mm-hmm. teachers, therapists. I want to have a life of service. And I want to tell people's stories, but I had to learn in that moment If I was going to tell other people's stories, I needed to tell my own first and find my voice, as she said. So that's what I started.
0: Such a beautiful story. You end up having two beautiful children. You call them your miracle babies. And considering that you say that you had your own sort of motherless experience, this was another point of deep healing. How has being a mother healed you?
1: What I realized probably when my son was about a year old. It wasn't just the desire to be a mother to those two children. It was also an opportunity for me to learn to mother my own young child within me. Yes. I really was a motherless child. And I know there's so many people out there that have that same experience. Mm -hmm. What I'm here to tell you is that you can learn to mother your wounded inner child that lives within you. And that's the deepest part of healing that you can start with. It's like the universe brings in other people, other women to come in and continue to mentor you, to mother you, to teach you all the things that I didn't have for my own natural mother. I received from other women. And from those experiences, trusting my own inner natural ability of being a nurturer, I had no problem embracing being a mother. And I had no problem ever thinking that I would never be a good mother. Mm-hmm. I always would be. And I know that's one of my proudest moments.
0: <laughs> so wonderful. Your father died unexpectedly. And your mom says to you, I know you wished it was me that died. Mm. What were you thinking when she said that?
1: I was so pissed, to be <laughs> honest.
0: Yes, I don't blame you.
1: <laughs> First of all, I was so upset that God took my dad. I wished so much it was my mother. And I'm being vulnerable here because, in truthful, because I have to be transparent. I still had not healed some things in the relationship with my mother and I. I did some healing, but I didn't get to the root of it. Because my dad still protected me with her. Mm. I was so upset that it was him and not her. So I looked at her truthfully and I said, you're right. I wish it was you. And I said, you probably killed him. That's how angry I was, Liz. And she looked at me and she said, you're probably right. And she goes, I wish it was me too. Mm. And then I just realized, okay, Perry thinking about Maya, put your big girl panties on. (laughs) And I said, but you know what, mom, maybe this is the way it's supposed to be so that we can finally heal what has happened between us and that we can somehow forgive each other. And I said, let's do that in dad's memory. So that's when that part of that healing started. But it was almost like my dad had to get out of the way for that to begin between my mother and I.
0: So powerful, Peary. I know that you believe your life's mission is to help people, and clearly you're doing that. Besides being a transformational coach and a speaker, Peary has authored two books Conversations with Peary, 30 Stories of People Who Reinvented Themselves, and How to Create Your Next Chapter, the Next Chapter Workbook. She's also a contributing writer to many major publications. She's on the prestigious Forbes Council and is the founder of Love is Louder with suicide survivor Kevin Hines, focusing on teenage depression and suicide. Clearly something close to your heart. Perry, you have done so much healing and so much transformation in your own life. You've recreated it and from a place that you yourself have called a personal mess to one of loving yourself, loving yourself from the inside out. What's the first step anyone needs to take to recreate their life and begin that healing process? Is it forgiveness?
1: I would say the first step is to be honest and take an inventory. How do you feel about yourself? Who are you now? Not who were you yesterday? Who are you going to be? Who are you now and how do you feel about yourself now? How many times do you stand up for yourself? How many times do you feel like you have imposter syndrome? Hmm. How many times do you date a guy who treats you badly, self-medicate, do retail therapy, try to cover up the emotional pain that lies within you because you really don't love yourself. And that usually means you usually don't even know who you are. And I like to use this quote, as George Eliot says, it's never too late to be what you might have been. My goal is to help illuminate that within you, is look deep inside of you because you're so much better and so much more lovable and so much more talented and so much stronger than what you give yourselves credit for. But we listen to those damn mental gremlins. They are nothing but liars. They're obstacles. They're excuses about why we don't have this, why we don't have that. And it's all a bunch of lies. But until you start doing that inner work of finding out who you are and why you're lovable, you can't go any further. I use the word reinvention, use the word renewal. Sometimes people don't even know what they can renew. Sometimes They're so far down in the depths because of life's challenges and experiences. It's soul curriculum. That's all it is. Yes. We all have it. It's not like one person's picked out over the other person. Circumstances are circumstances. We can't control any of those. The only thing we can control are our responses. How do we deal with it? So if you're trying to go through life without help, without tools, without strategies, to help you have a great life or the life that you really want, you can't do that until you get those tools, until you get those strategies. I use the story of if someone is an athlete, let's say they have a goal of running a 10K, their body inside nutritionally, their food is perfect, they're taking the right supplements, the right vitamins, but they've got a bad knee. But they think, God's oh, okay, I'm still going to be able to finish that 10K, but the voice says, yeah, but you got a bad knee. Well, I'm going to ignore that. Because I have everything else going on. Yeah, but what about that bad knee? When are you going to deal with the bad knee? And it's the same thing within us. When are you going to decide whatever obstacle it is or whatever excuse it is, whatever needs to be fixed or needs to be reinvented, when we fix those things first and we're whole is when we can move forward with an action plan and have the life that we truly, truly want. You'll find that in that honest inventory.
0: Well, I'm guessing because I know you have a course right now, a wonderful workshop that is called Awaken and Reinvention Workshop. I'm going to guess that that's what this workshop is about, really helping people kind of hone in on what is it that needs to be healed? What is it that needs to be addressed? What is it that needs to be awakened so you can reinvent yourself?
1: Yes. It's a five-step program that I actually created a workbook because from the book, when I did all the um, interviews of people who reinvented their lives, when I was out speaking, people would say, yeah, but how do you do it? Right. So I sat down and I I took a year and a half and I wrote this workbook and I created five activator steps to reinvention, finding out who you are now. And next is who you want to be. What's your vision? The fourth one is the meat and potatoes. That fourth chapter is called obstacles. It's the excuses, mm. the things that you have to ask yourself, what's holding you back? What are you fearful of? Is it failure? Really, what is it? And sometimes it's a secret. Sometimes it's unforgiveness. Sometimes it's you really don't love yourself. We identify what it is. I call myself the obstacle terminator. <laughs> I can tell when I work with people What really is that obstacle? I'm not just a coach. I'm a spiritual psychologist. I studied for years to get my MA. It's a curriculum that taught us how to not just put another Band-Aid on, something that says, okay, I'm just going to put this survival skill on. No. Spiritual psychology is different that you rip the Band-Aid off and you find the wound and you heal the wound. Because when you heal the wound, it won't come back again. And you'll start looking differently, acting differently. You'll start manifesting differently. You will start believing in yourself. I mean, it's almost like a magic pill happens. Because we're all energy and it's all energy-based work. It's all getting in there and being honest with yourself. It also believing that you can do it.
0: That's such a key, key piece is first of all, giving yourself permission to do it and then believing that you can.
1: And then doing it. You know, it's not going to happen by us. No, it's
0: not. (laughs) To learn more about Peary and her coaching and workshops and speaking, just go to her website, pirijonesgrossman.com. We'll have that link for you in our show notes. Perry, I know because I follow you on social media that you are truly happy. And if I may dare say so, you are in love. It sounds like yeah. you're living your best life right now.
1: <laughs> I am. I mean, I'm in my 60s. I'm not sure you know the number of marriages and divorces I've had, but I've been married and divorced four times and I gave up on love completely. I just thought, you know, men changed. And then I realized, well, I'm the common denominator. Maybe I need to change. And when I did that inner work and really found out, and I I fell in love with who I was, warts and all. And I didn't expect anybody else to make me happy. I didn't expect anybody else to do the things that I could do for myself. When you do that kind of work is when you meet your mirror image. And it's usually somebody who's done his work as well. And you match because your wounds aren't matching. And that's what happens to so many of us, because we're so attracted to a certain type. Well, there's a reason, right? And it usually blows up. And I guarantee you, if I ask you to write down your wounds and what his wounds were, they will match. Mm -hmm. But if you heal those wounds, and those wounds are no longer an attractor, and you meet somebody else who also has healed those wounds, that's when you find true, unconditional love. I've accomplished a lot in my life and I'm so grateful for it. But I got to tell you, that was the last thing on my bucket list. And I was afraid. I even told him, I don't want to get married. Just want to let you know. Don't want to get married. Don't believe in it. We can be committed and all that. And he said, okay. And then I realized, wait a minute, that would be a life regret. Mm. And I don't want anything on my deathbed to have a regret. And that would be one of them. Because I want and wanted a love that lasted forever in marriage. And that's what I got. That's what I'm getting. It's next June. So <laughs> congratulations, <It
0: can't> Perry. <laughs> oh, it is such a pleasure to connect with you and speak with you. Thank you for the courage you have had today to share your personal journey of transformation and recreation. I know it's going to touch a lot of people's hearts. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Liz, for the opportunity.
0: And to all of you who are listening, I say thank you May Peary's story inspire you to know that you can change your life. You can go after living your best life as well. Until next time, be well. This podcast is brought to you in part by Fast Twitch Media, helping people tell their stories and giving them worldwide reach. The future is in the cloud and Fast Twitch Media can take you there. Be your best digital self. Check out fastwitchmedia.space.